When rural hospitals consider new partnerships, they often come in as the underdogs, unsure of the value they bring to the table and expecting to fight tooth and nail for what they want and need in a worthwhile partnership. And the larger organizations looking to enter the partnership often see rural hospitals the same way, small and desperate for support. So how do rural hospitals go beyond the stereotypes that surround them to build relationships based on mutual respect, trust, and value? With candid conversations, a strong understanding of their strengths, and a crystal clear articulation to their potential partners. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 67 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, last week we had my good friend uh, Eric Schell on, and we're going to we're going to follow up with that. But, you know, obviously we started the topic. Um, we realized very quickly that we are going to need at least two episodes uh, <laughs> for this particular topic and to discuss, obviously, rural hospital partnerships with larger systems and organizations and the relationship that they play to, in my estimation, avoid any type of hostile takeovers right. and or any type of affiliation or merger that's going to be harmful to the smaller organization. Now, we've talked about relationships where they've been beneficial uh, mm-hmm. in building a strategic partnership, et cetera. But, you know, we're really focusing on the value added to those rural hospitals. So i uh, very excited today uh, that we can talk about this topic. Yes. Last week, we spoke with Eric Schell, as you said, chairman and rural practice leader of Stroudwater Associates. And today, we have the pleasure of speaking with his colleague to go even more in-depth on this issue. That's right. Our guest today is Jeff Summer, managing director of Stroudwater Associates. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Jeff. Well, thank you, JJ and Rachel. It's a pleasure to be with you. So to start, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Stroudwater? Sure. Um, So uh, I've probably been in healthcare for close to 30 years, which is just, it's amazing how the time wow. uh, creeps up on you. Um, I've been a consultant for most of that time. Um, uh, the last 16 and a half years with Stroudwater Associates. Prior, oh, wow. to, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, prior to joining Stroudwater, I actually worked uh, in a um, three hospital system that included two critical access hospitals. So a very mm-hmm. significant uh, rural um, component of that system. The uh, also included a regional referral center as well. And what was interesting about that experience was that um, the the two critical access hospitals actually were very strong performers uh, financially and operationally for that health system. And so really have consistently been um, very positive contributors to the overall performance of that health system. Um, sadly, that's not always the case, um, but what we found is that uh, oftentimes that's not the fault of the rural affiliate. It's that there's missed opportunities along the way. And uh, hence, um, a lot of the work we've been doing at Stradwater, um, helping organizations either negotiating and finding the right partner and negotiating a, an affiliation that's a sustainable win-win, or in the case of uh, organizations that already have significant rural operations, helping them better align and realize the value of those rural operations. Um, so we find that very often those are suboptimized. So my work at Stradwater is in the affiliation service line, 
and that involves both of those those uh, components, helping folks with new uh, affiliations, prospective affiliations, and also um, helping folks uh, improve existing affiliations. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. Now, we do this on every episode, so we and our listeners get to know our guests just a little bit better. So uh, we want to know, Jeff, what is your why? What motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning? Well, I would say in the 16 years I've been at Stroudwater, the thing that um, most excites me and gets me most energized is helping organizations solve problems so that they're able to better serve their communities. And I've had the good fortune of working in a number of areas, whether that be strategic planning or uh, capital planning and helping with folks with major facility projects or in in over the last eight to 10 years, really focusing on um, relationships and affiliations and partnerships. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think you guys used the expression, the underdog um, in your mm-hmm. introduction. And I think there is something really energizing and rewarding about helping organizations that either are perceived to be the underdog or may believe themselves to be the underdog and helping them outperform. And so um, at the end of the day, it's about trying to um, ensure that uh, folks in those communities have access to good local health care. And, and that's, um, you know, a really rewarding um, part of what we do. And that is really what gets me up in the morning and keeps me energized after almost 17 years at Stradwater. Yeah, it's an important why. So, you know, Jeff, to start, um, rural healthcare systems are often stereotyped as inferior. I've heard that many times. Uh, And it leads to larger organizations steering away from partnerships or even looking towards an acquisition instead. Um, So, you know, and and I want to be careful in how I, you know, characterize the word inferior. You know, it's oftentimes looked at as, well, they don't produce as much financially, their quality scores. And that's just absolutely sometimes the opposite of what we see. But, you know, why are rural health systems in in the work that you've done, 17-year Stroudwater and even before that in healthcare, what are, you know, rural health systems, why are they seen this way? It's a great question, JJ. And, and in fact, I was just having a conversation with a colleague. We're doing some work with a critical access hospital uh, in New England right now. And um, we're looking at some of the patient satisfaction results for that organization relative to its competing uh, hospitals, including some academic uh, or at least tertiary providers. And um, what was really interesting is, and we find this actually a lot, is that the individual HCAP scores around some of those process indicators, the, the critical access hospital will do really quite well. And then when you get down to the likelihood to recommend there's a significant gap. Uh, in this case, what was interesting was this critical access hospital outperformed on I, you know, seven of, of eight of the indicators before you get to that <laughs> likelihood to recommend. And then they were, were even. So there was a gap, but, but they were playing you know, kind of on a level playing field with, with their closest rival and outperforming everybody else. So this was a really a well-performing organization on that set of metrics. Um, But to your point, 
that perception is something that persists not just within healthcare administration, healthcare management, but more broadly. Um, and it is it is a problem and a detriment um, to rural organizations. I think the the reasons for the disconnect within healthcare leadership and administration is I do think there is a bias and an orientation to wanting to serve at larger organizations held by many, not all, um, and that when you look at larger systems, many of the folks that are in leadership roles or roles are working their way through the leadership roles, again, are oriented towards, you know, wanting to work at larger organizations and migrate towards larger platforms. And I think that creates a certain momentum or perspective that permeates decisions. The other thing I would say is there are many unique operational, financial, regulatory um, opportunities and constraints around uh, rural and critical access hospitals. And what we found is even folks that grow up in the critical access hospital setting and then move on to larger system leadership roles, they, they sometimes will no longer have the connection with the context and what's going on, so they won't ask the right question. So while they understand cost-based reimbursement or some of the regulatory parameters, they're no longer asking the right question because they're surrounded with people who don't know those. And I've seen that play out both in the C-suite, but also kind of in the trenches and financial analysts and managers who, you know, come from a, you know, very sophisticated insight around cost-based reimbursement and then are in a much larger multi-state system. And when it comes to looking at their rural affiliates, um, you know, fail to ask the right question and therefore miss really important opportunities. Um, I don't think it's done maliciously. I think it's like anything, there's a culture within organizations and there's an orientation that people have in terms of where they see their careers going. But I think the end result is one where there is a disconnect between the actual value of rural affiliates, whether those are in the system or their potential affiliates outside of the system, and um, the perceived value and the actual value. Uh, we'll talk about that some more, I'm sure. But I, I, I think you know it exists in the in the patient and the consumer segment, and it extends into um, you know industry expertise and managers, people who work in the industry. And it's it's I actually have um, taken to referring to. Um, the book and movie Moneyball, um, which you may be familiar with, but the premise of it was in baseball, there was a disconnect between the actual value of, of players, um, the, the, the real value, and the, what people were being paid. Uh, and in this case, um, it's actually a great, a great book and a, and a kind of a fun movie, but the Oakland A's were a small market team, and the only way they could compete against the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox was to find undervalued players and build a roster around those. And they were actually successful in doing that because there was a disconnect in how those players contributed to wins versus what the market was saying they needed to be paid. And I honestly believe there's there's something very similar to, the, to that occurring in healthcare today where the value perception of rural health systems is lower than their actual value. Um, and by value, I mean, it's, it, that's a, I'm using a pretty broad definition of that. It's not just, oh, you know, here's, 
here's what a valuation expert would say, but but what they bring to the table, both in terms of delivering healthcare, but a system of healthcare as well. Um, there's a lot of, of intrinsic value there that is either missed or misunderstood. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the likelihood to recommend question, and JJ was kind of looking at me like, ah, because just last week and then also again tomorrow from when we're recording this, um, I am giving a presentation to our employees during our enrichment workshops that we're doing um, that addresses this particular issue because we are starting a campaign, the Extra Inch campaign, which comes from um, one of Disney Institute's trainers, I believe, is kind of where that um idea started of the extra inch can be enough. You don't always have to go the extra mile. But in presenting this idea to our staff, I put up with, you know, circles on my slide that are the, the you know, um, proper size based on these different metrics. But if you look at, for example, on our, um, you know, how would you rate this hospital on a scale of zero to 10, zero being the worst hospital possible, 10 being the best hospital possible um, for our other domains, other than that question and the likelihood to recommend question, we are outperforming, you know, 76% of other hospitals um, around the country. With the likelihood to recommend, it drops to 35%, so the 35th percentile. And with the 0 to 10 question, I think it's somewhere in the either mid-50s or low 60s. Mm-hmm. 62 is coming to my mm-hmm. mind, but I could be wrong. Um, and then we look at how many sevens and eights are we getting as opposed to nines and tens or how many probably yes as opposed to definitely yes on the likelihood to recommend question. And if our sevens and eights were nines and tens, we're performing at like the 96th percentile. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with the likelihood to recommend question. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing to think about because there is, it's like you said, it's not just a perception that happens within the industry. It happens on the consumer end as well. And we see it all the time. Um, But, you know, what are some of the unique attributes that rural hospitals have that because of this kind of stereotype and perception, larger organizations may overlook? And, you know, we do on on this podcast have a bit of a bias toward (laughs) hospitals remaining independent, but we also recognize that there may be scenarios where the only path forward for a hospital is, um, you know, an affiliation or an acquisition. And uh, I would say doing it with you guys as a partner is probably the best case scenario if if that's the step that has has to be taken. Um, but you know, what, what are the, the bigger systems, even in partnerships that may not necessarily be to that level, but are more about, um, you know, providing specialty care and, and things like that, where that hospital remains independent. What are some of those attributes that the larger groups are overlooking and, and, you know, what is out there that kind of like you mentioned before that the big systems have no awareness of or no context for Mm -hmm. within the rural environment? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a it's a great question, and there's a lot of examples. Um, I, I would say a lot of this conversation perhaps is most relevant or most frequently relevant to existing partnerships, because what we mm-hmm. find time and time again is, you know, critical access hospital or rural affiliate joins a larger system, and that relationship is suboptimized, and mm-hmm. to the detriment of the system. And also the detriment of the rural affiliate, because then when people are allocating capital and making decisions, they're looking at the performance of the rural affiliate and they're not putting a proper value on it. I'll give you Mm -hmm. an example. Um, um, We were doing some work with a multi-state system, large 
uh, system that had significant rural operations, including multiple critical access hospitals. And um, the internal financial folks at the system uh, basically had, um, when they looked at the value of an incremental referral from a rural affiliate, okay, there's a specialty referral that's going to come in, we've got the systems of care, et cetera. They had a very high proportion of variable cost assigned to that, which which essentially means there's there's a great, much reduced contribution margin. So if if you know, let's say a, an incremental referral for ease of math brings in a thousand dollars of incremental revenue, this system was saying eighty percent of that revenue would be eaten up in variable costs. So there'd be only two hundred dollars towards contribution margin, towards paying for overhead and fixed costs. Well. We had to spend a lot of time talking with system leadership and the financial folks internally to saying that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the value of an incremental referral actually has, you know, you do have a step function in terms of having to open up a new unit, et cetera. But mm-hmm. an incremental referral from an affiliate into a regional referral center um, has, you know, maybe 20 percent, we would estimate, variable cost. You know, pharmaceuticals, incremental housekeeping, incremental nursing time, um, uh, dietary, um, something in in that realm, and so a very significant contribution margin. But if you've got that that accounting wrong, what that means then is you look at your rural affiliates, and it it, it doesn't matter what they do. So you're evaluating them on a standalone basis, and chances are, if you've got the marginal uh, rev, uh, variable cost, cost. Uh, equation wrong. You've also got other things wrong in terms of looking mm-hmm. at their operation, but you, you're just fundamentally undervaluing that. That's one example. Another example, a different system, again, one where uh, they had two critical access affiliates relatively new to the system. And even though the C-suite of the, the critical access affiliates uh, both of which were very strong, very well-run, very high-performing affiliates. Um, and actually the accountants, the auditors for the system itself, all spoke to the system CFO about the home office allocation and the potential benefits of allocating costs from the system uh, onto the critical access affiliates' uh, cost reports and the incremental uh, benefit that would exist from that, the system CFO refused to uh, acknowledge that opportunity hmm. and recognize it. And so as a result, um, at the system level, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the value, um, at least that one component of value that those critical access affiliates bring to the table. But again, in our experience, that's typically systematic of a more um, comprehensive misunderstanding of the value. So if you think about, you know, the the variable cost and contribution margin of an incremental referral, uh, the home office allocation, um, you know, all of those components, which are start to get, you know, maybe a little esoteric, some of which are start to get really specific to critical access hospitals or rural affiliates, whether those be swing bed programs um, access to uh, 340B um, or rural health clinics, um, all of those components are not something that if you're running a, a large health system or a large PPS referral center, that you're really going to be fully up to speed on. 
and the disbelief or remove from that. Um, in the case of this system, I mean, easily, um, you know, $7 million, $8 million uh, a year um, negative implication. And it's not as if that, that system couldn't have used that revenue. While both critical access hospital affiliates were very strong, the actual regional referral center was really struggling at the same time. Mm -hmm. So again, mm -hmm. you have this misunderstanding of the value that the, the rural affiliates bring, and that then results in, you know, as frankly, um, um, underinvestment and a, a lack of resources to support um, the, the, the continued performance of those rural affiliates. Um, so a couple of examples there. So, you know, Jeff, that speaks volumes to my leading question, which was the co still the concept in some of the big system healthcare CEOs' minds, which is, oh, inferior, just the little guys. You're the, you know, you're the Hillsdales. Come on. We do this every day. Right. We're like the big the, system. That's cute. Good that's, for you. Oh, good for you. Yeah. But, you know, these folks don't know anything about disproportionate hospital share. These folks don't know anything about OB stabilization money. They don't know all of those things that we do. So here's here's my proposition. I've got one. So first of all, um, you and Eric do a webinar called uh, The Rule Value Proposition. Uh, and you take uh, a journey through how hospital systems should value the rule partner. And the key is, call them partners. You know, that's that's... This is so this is where it goes, you know, and I don't want so I don't want my competitors, though, to hear this this episode because they're going to think, <laughs> oh, my God, there is value to the rule. OK, because I don't want them knocking on my door like they already do. But but I often refer to this scenario as the dog that chases the car. But when he gets the car, it's like, well, what the hell do I do with the car? Right. I mean, there's almost that mentality. And so, you know. This is what I've experienced throughout my career, and it's 13 years now. Big systems knock on our door. Uh, they walk into the boardroom and wearing beautiful suits, bringing an entourage, Jeff, of people. I mean, just um, just amazing uh, sea of people. And they have their brochure and their corporate lingo, and they start talking about what they're going to do for Hillsdale. Now, when they don't call us Hillsboro, and they actually get our name right and call us Hillsdale Hospital, uh, we have some dialogue. And, and this is how it goes. All right, let me tell you something. You affiliate with us, we're giving you access to capital. And then I stop them and I say, well, have you been over to our building? We have a beautiful infrastructure. We just invested $22 million from a USDA loan to build you know, several new units. It's beautiful. Our, our facility, Ask Eric Shell, is immaculate. It's beautiful. It shines. I don't need access to cap. Well, we're going to get you the best technology. I have the best technology. We have you know, the 128 slice CT. We've got the brand new MRI. So what happens is they're, they're, if they want to be successful, Jeff, and this is in, I read your article. Uh, Stroudwater put the article out about the, the undervaluation of rural hospitals. I think the big systems will get it right when they come into a room not wearing their ties. Seriously, I wear a tie every day. But they have to they have to come down to us and say, you know what? We've been looking at your hospital. Your quality scores are pretty good. You know, your patients love you. Um, wow, how are you doing this? How are you staffing? How you you've got six administrators and you're doing 23 jobs. Why don't they 
come to us and say, can you teach us a few things about, but they don't. It's almost as if the relationships immediately stops right there when they start with their hubris of, well, let us tell you what we can do for you. We're going to infuse some capital in your building, and then we're going to teach you all how to be good leaders. And then what? The condescension is like is so unbelievable. unbelievable. So it's like the dog that chases the car. Then, Then they can't articulate, no, no, no. How are you going to increase the the health outcomes of our community? Let's talk about that. Shut shut up about about talking about capital. I don't want to hear about that. How are you going to increase you know the 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 health outcomes? How are you going to infuse you know better uh, health care in our right. community? What's in it for me? What's in it for Hillsdale? Yeah, which is sales one hundred and one by the way. So it's shocking that that's not yeah you know, done better. Or Gigi, I, I read, you know, that you implemented something, your hand-washing hygiene went from, you know, basically 68% compliance and we led the nation with 100% compliance in hand-washing. True story. The question is, we turned that around in six months. How'd you do that? You know, we want we want to tap into your expert, but that never happens. Right. And so, you know, it's, it, and I know I'm preaching, okay, and I don't mean to, but but that is the biggest issue we have with M&As. Well, I, I, here's what I, I here's what I will say. I, so I think you're right. The the hubris and frankly the track record, all all of that needs to be examined with a healthy dose of skepticism. So mm-hmm. you know, for folks that you know, if if you're in a relationship, what I would say is, and and you're struggling. The the the, the your partner is not listening to you uh, around opportunities. Then I, I I think you know there's really a a process where you try to identify some relatively uh, low-risk, low-cost, high-return opportunities to start demonstrating a track record. See, we do know what we're doing, and we can create value. Yep. And then you yep. build off of that, get some early wins. Um, and, and then we've got some ideas around how to, how to do that. We can talk about that if there's time. Um, but I would say for uh, if folks that are exploring, um, you know, whether they need to partner, first of all, you know, I think having um, a skepticism of partners, partnerships, and and being very pragmatic about risks. So there are risks about being a standalone organization, um, mm-hmm. but there sure. are also risks when you bring a partner to the table. Right. And so if you are going to bring a partner to the table and sign on the dotted line, you better make sure that first of all, it's it's a strategically aligned partner. Um, mm-hmm. So they're they're going to cons- as as consistently as possible do the right thing by you. That they've got a track record that speaks to that, uh, mm-hmm. and there are ways we we we've gone in and kicked the tires with some large systems that operate uh, numerous rural affiliates on behalf of our clients. And what we found is, you know, we're evaluating two or three systems or partners, and um, invariably one of them has got a great spiel. But when you dig in and you look at the track record of their affiliates post affiliation, you just see this continued downward slide. And, you know, they would say, well, you've got to understand we had retirements, folks left. And, you know, our response is, you know, one of the reasons they would look for a partner in a situation like that is that you could help them address that that kind of turnover and rebuild the medical staff, as opposed to just saying this is an opportunity to suck volume out of that community and bring it down to the mothership. So I, I, I won't name the system, but we did recently in the last couple of years look at a system that had, I think it was about eight rural affiliates, uh, some of which were, were PPS hospitals, the majority of which were critical access hospitals. 
in every single one of those those communities, the market share of the local affiliate um, dropped significantly um, in the years post affiliation, and the market share of the of the mothership went up. Um, and you know that's one where I, I would get on on some instances there can be a clinical or operational rationale for that, but for that to occur consistently across the board is a strategic decision they've made. And that really, mm-hmm. in this case, contradicted their spiel yes. to their prospective partners. Yes. But right. you, need to, you need to vet those partners, evaluate their track record, make yes. sure they, 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 their walk matches their talk. <clears throat> and then the other thing I would say, so you've got to get the right partner. You've got to get the right structure if you're going to go that route. So it matches right. your needs and, and mitigates some of the risks you have. Um, and then lastly, whatever commitments you're looking for, those need to be contractually enforceable. Yes, and, um, you know, folks are pretty good, pretty slick about drafting things that, that sound good <laughs> when you read them, um, but they're, they're full of weasel words. And yes. you really need to, um, you know, be, be skeptical um, of those prospects. So um, I, I agree with you. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that, rural health systems benefit from those if they're going to do them and that they're not taken advantage of. Absolutely. And, and I want to, and I want to put a plug in here for Stroudwater because that's what you do. And right. you are, you are great friends to my hospital and we've had a relationship uh, with your organization for quite some time since I've been here, in fact. And uh, you are always looking at the best interest of the, the, the client you're working with, and, and you use the depth of information that you have. But, you know, to your point, um, you know, doing your homework. So it's, it's very interesting, just a quick story. Mm-hmm. So after that out-of-state health system left, the next morning, with God as my witness, and I'm going to show Rachel the words, the health system left here, we get a Google alert that they just laid off 200 employees among their system. Now, they were here the night before telling us how wonderful, nothing's going to change, life is good, and then they do that. And recently posting hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. That's, that's where, to your point, the affiliate, the smaller hospital who's going to bring great value to those organizations needs to do their homework because you don't want to want you want to know why we have great value added. You know, it's it's you are in a good position as long as it's not a fire sale to really market yourself to per se the highest bidder, but more than that to the best strategic lined partner. That, that will serve your community. So you look at, you know, what is that health system delivering in their communities? Mm-hmm. Are they going to come in and strip out your OB department? That's a problem for me because right. we've watched that happen in big systems, even in our area, Jeff. They, the big systems, we watch them. They buy the small hospitals. They get rid of their OBGYN program. They ship the, the surgeries to the mothership. In our community of 47,000 people, transportation is a huge barrier. Mm-hmm. People cannot get to their providers. So you're going to ship, tell them that they have to go right. 45 minutes down the road. So my point, and I believe your point is, if you're looking for whatever reason uh, to have a strategic partnership, a merger, an acquisition of your facility as a rural hospital, you better make sure that you're accountable to your community and to the health long-term 
healthcare needs of your community because it's it's more than just being you know responsible financially. It's about making sure that your partner is going to serve your community's healthcare needs in the best possible manner whatsoever. And I think one of the things that you did in your article was brilliant. That's what started this. Actually, I reached out to Stroudwater to Rachel and said, Rachel. I just read this article and I forwarded it to her. Yep. You know, this is written by Jeff and this is awesome. And he's from Stroudwater and these are the folks that have been helping us because your point was spot on. You know, too many times rural health has been undervalued and unappreciated in the partnership that it's just we're looked at as like, oh, you're part, you know, we're just going to do this to help you access to capital. So I know that was a long way around it. But one of the things that we did talk about is, you know, how can the rural hospital demonstrate that they can bring more to the table than just those covered lives. What would you yep. say to that? Well, um, that's important. So I, I would say, you know, the hard work is, and, and kudos to you, JJ, um, in the work you've been doing at, at Hillsdale, um, because the first order of business is to make sure that operationally, clinically, financially, you know, the organization's sound. Um, because, you know, if, if you are distressed, um, what that means it signals is there's going to be a significant turnaround and need to invest resources. And, you know, it's not just capital that's constrained in healthcare today. Clinical resources, management resources are scarce and expensive. And so that that's, can be scary. So one of the points you made earlier, and it's one of the great um, uh, contradictions, if you will, around Part, potentially partnering or evaluating your strategic options is the best time to have that conversation is not when you absolutely have to do it, but when it's optional. Uh, and so you can do it from a position of strength and hopefully find a partner that will check those boxes. And JJ, to one of your points you just made, really focus on long-term community benefit, right? right. How is absolutely. the community going to benefit from this partnership long-term? You want to make sure you check those boxes. Um, so um, that's incredibly important. What we would say is one of the things is even if you've got a strong relationship because you have a really good relationship with their management team or their clinical leadership, um, it's important to look at your options side by side, um, in, part, in part because your board, if you're going to evaluate partners and your strategic options, they're fiduciaries, so they need yep. to do their work on behalf of the community, and looking yes. at options is important. What we sometimes find is that the leading candidate, the natural referral partner, the folks that you've worked with really well, when it comes time to partner, they don't necessarily bring their A game, or they're not willing to make the commitments that are going to protect the community <laughs> long term. Because they're like, hey, right. you know us, you trust us. Well, yeah. right. that's true, but unfortunately, people leave their jobs. Boards turn over. And mm -hmm. so board leadership or C-suite leadership can turn over, and that can change the dynamic very significantly. Oh, right. Huge. Instead so, of trust but verify, it's trust but contractually obligate. Absolutely. There you go. Well well said. And yeah. um, that's it. And so, you know, it, it gets back to um, making sure that if, if things haven't been going well, that you've got a plan in place and you're working the plan and you're on a trajectory to turn things around. So that's really important. Folks don't want to come into an organization or be talking to an organization that's struggling. Maybe they're distressed and it's clear there is no plan. Um, yeah. So job number one is having a plan. 
And then yes. being able to share that plan, articulate the plan and show some progress, that changes the dynamic because now they'll say, okay, yeah, these guys aren't where we want them to be, but clearly management's doing what they need to be doing and they're on their way. And yeah. so this is a different situation than one that's distressed and really struggling. Um, so I think that is job number one. And then mm -hmm. job number two is to identify all of those different value drivers and articulate and quantify those. And what's going to happen is some partners simply won't get it. We've had mm -hmm. that experience as well. Yes. The preferred partner that's been sitting on a letter of intent for six months and yeah. doesn't do anything um, because they, they have an exclusive and they're not really sure whether they should value this rural entity or just focus on their core operation. You know, our advice would be never give somebody an exclusive until they've made you a proposal that meets your strategic objectives. Yep. At that point, you can select them as your preferred partner. We right. would argue you should always do that by comparing options before you get there. So the board as fiduciaries, if they decide to go down that road, can say, we've looked at our options, including the option of remaining independent and executing our strategy. And one of the things I'd say about working at Stroudwater that I love is that I have colleagues like Eric and others that are really focused on helping organizations succeed as standalone entities. Um, and so, you know, when we when we talk about evaluating strategic options, there are advisors out there, all they do is affiliations. And so if mm -hmm. you hire one of those entities to help you with your strategic options, not surprisingly, they're going to tell you 95 times out of 100, well, you need to affiliate. Oh, absolutely. Um, right, right. When you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Exactly. I love that expression <laughs> because it's so true. The thing yes. I love about Stradwater is three quarters of our work is helping independent hospitals execute their strategies to remain independent. And the rest of our work is either helping people that are already in um, system relationships improve those relationships or evaluate and select a preferred affiliation partner yes. so that they can protect their community, protect the organization, uh, if that's the right thing for them. Absolutely. So it really is a balancing act. And I, I love the fact that we are not that proverbial hammer in search of a nail. Um, so, so Jeff, you know, the, real quick, the, the reality is, and, and you don't have to respond to this because you're in a unique position, so you can just nod your heads and no one will see it. But uh, <laughs> essentially, you know, there are a lot of third-party companies that make a lot of money selling hospitals. And I mean a lot of money. I'm not going to name them. Um, but they are at every conference I go to, they're always, to, hey, 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 they're like those car salesmen. And so I have reached out to our congressman, and I'm actually working with him, uh, and I want to put together something. But here are, here's, here's what I'm recommending that be an, a legislative piece federally. There's two conditions of buying and selling a hospital. The first one is the purchasing hospital, all right, the one who acquires the, the hospital, the, the current CEO cannot benefit financially from the purchase. In other words, a lot of CEOs, and I don't, I, I just, I'm giving my two cents. A lot of CEOs have within their bonus performance metrics percentages that go for every hospital that they can bring on board to their system. They get a bonus for it. So that's number one. The second issue that I propose is no selling CEO. They cannot receive a golden parachute and they must resign within six months. Now, 
What that's going to do is it's going to get to the heart of the matter. You are not going to be motivated by money. You will be motivated to create the best partnership whatsoever based on the needs of that community and of those patients. And I guarantee you, and I don't need to respond, I guarantee you that we will have less M&As if those two things exist in, in, our, in our system today. Because too many times I'll read from many healthcare articles about the reasons of the affiliation, and then I see the outcomes of it. Someone's named executive vice president of this and now get a you know system salary, and then they get the golden parachute because they're going to retire. There can be no financial motivation. There should be no financial motivation to sell a hospital. It should be based on an affiliation that would provide better health care. And then I'll leave it right there, Rachel. <laughs> well, I, I would say to your point, I mean, it, it gets it, it helps to eliminate a lot of the predatory mergers that happen or and what I do. would characterize as predatory I agree. I agree. and leaves room for the kind of affiliations that you do, Jeff, where there is a mutual benefit. It makes sense for yeah. both the selling hospital and the buying system. And there's from from the get go, there's an understanding of we need to make sure that there are commitments so that this community will benefit in the end. Um, as opposed to, you know, they can come in and shut down all the services that lose money and just keep the rest there that make money and otherwise suck all the patients up to the mothership. And then when they go to negotiate their insurance reimbursement, they oh, can yeah. say, oh, we now have 100,000 more covered lives. Absolutely. So guess what? You're going to pay us more yeah. for X, Y, and Z. Because otherwise, there's no value in purchasing that rural hospital, right? I mean, Correct. and maybe that's me being skeptical, but yeah. I don't see why else a system would purchase a rural hospital that isn't already has some stability like what you were talking about and in, you know, negotiating from a position of strength, not from a position of mm -hmm. of desperation. So I'm with you, JJ. Okay. So that's to, just to no one's surprise. <laughs> to no one's surprise. That's that's why all. we do rural health rising. But anyway, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of issues that that come into play when you talk MAs. And, you know, we we just touched on a few of them lately. So. Right, right. So, Jeff, how have you and Stroudwater Associates worked to help rural hospitals confidently command the respect that they deserve as a potentially lucrative partner in developing these new relationships and in the process of, you know, potential affiliation? And also, um, if you can speak to that at all in the scenario of not necessarily affiliation or acquisition, but a mutually beneficial um, mm -hmm. partnership that is not... The, the partnership being a broad term, but a partnership that's not an acquisition or an affiliation in both of those scenarios. Sure. Well, um, Rachel, you, you really bring up a, a great point in that um, not all partnerships are acquisitions or sole member substitutions. There's a very extensive continuum of options available. And what's really important is, yeah, you want to select a strategically aligned partner, but you also want to uh, select a structure that's going to address the needs and constraints and risks of both entities. Um, so if what you need is a clinical partner to help with certain clinical centers of excellence to enhance those, then that suggests a certain contractual or clinical relationship. Um, if what you need is something that offers more 
extensive operational support, then you move along the continuum um, um, in, in that direction. Um, and selecting that right partner and that right structure is not no. something to take for granted. We've spent a couple of years helping organizations that we didn't advise unwind yes. wow. mm-hmm. uh, affiliations and partnerships that they had the wrong partner and the wrong structure. And um, it's really a terrible yeah. and toxic mm-hmm. uh, and incredibly distracting thing yeah. um, to go through if that's the case. So it's really important to get it, get it right. Um, I think the conversation begins um, with, you know, making sure that whomever you're talking with understands rural, has a track record that backs up what they're saying. Uh, and whatever type mm-hmm. of partnership or relationship you're looking into, do they have the resources? Do they have they done what they said they were going to do? Can you factually confirm it? Um, you know, we we often will do site visits, mm-hmm. but we'll also do a deep dive in data and really look at what the data tells us as opposed to what you know mm-hmm. the folks in the fancy suits are telling us, um, and and really um, mm-hmm. verifying things. Um, I will say there's a number of of partners and it's not an insignificant Mm -hmm. uh, percentage that just won't get it on a fundamental level. They just will not value it. It's like, and I'll give you an example. We had a, in the Southeast, a a client of ours, it's actually a a healthy, very healthy critical access hospital. Um, uh, Their one weakness, strong balance sheet, good operating results, good, good service area in terms of the size and demographics and, and, market position, quality outcomes, et cetera. Their one weakness was they had a, a significantly uh, antiquated facility. So clearly we're gonna need um, to make a major investment. Um, they talked talk to a regional referral center who was, we, we went through a, a lengthy analysis to document and quantify the value that could be realized from these two entities doing some sort of partnership. And both sides were quite, quite pleasantly surprised by the magnitude of value that existed. Um, That organization also uh, talked to a large multi-state not-for-profit operator who initially their letter of intent to them was what you would give a distressed hospital that was on the verge of not making payroll as opposed to the type of organization. I I would be offended, you know what I mean? And well, and our client Mm -hmm. was offended and we, we were uh, offended uh, and so we we then engaged in this process right. of saying, wait a minute, I think you misunderstand. Um, and, I, and you know, frankly, I probably wouldn't have been as patient as our client was. But we went from a give us the keys is a pat on the head. We'll take it from here. Uh, you have no no role in the organization going forward. And we're making minimal commitments to you to one that. Um, okay, there's going to be significant local and shared governance and reserve powers, and we're going to make some very significant both clinical and capital commitments to that organization because they started to see, okay, here's the value they're bringing uh, to our entity. This is how it's it's really accretive from a both a financial but operational clinical standpoint. So that's an example of, I think, how the dynamic can change when um, you have those conversations. But we've had another client of ours who their preferred partner never got it, just couldn't wrap their arms around it. Um, you know, fortunately, part of the process there was we said, you know what, don't just talk to one entity. Let's talk to multiple partners. 
in this case, it was a distressed organization. They knew they needed to do something to be viable long term. Um, and they were able to identify a partner that understood rural, understood rural turnarounds, and appreciated the inherent value proposition that this organization would bring. Uh, and so was was willing to make commitments in terms of we're going to stabilize the organization, we're going to make investments, and we're going to sustain and grow clinical programs so that that community, that board was really confident that, you know what, given where we are, this is going to be a much better outcome for us as an organization because they were in a pretty compromised um, position, frankly. And, and um, I think we're, you know, thrilled to, to kind of develop the kind of partnership that they ultimately got. But I think we're surprised that their preferred partner, who should have seen the value and would have derived the most value, frankly, just given the geographic proximity, just couldn't wrap their arms around it, get out of their own. They couldn't get out of their own way. So, right. Rachel, now you see why I sent you the email that said, this guy is oh, remarkable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just remarkable. Right. I mean, what, what he has been able to do working with Stroudwater that helps organizations like Hillsdale is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Jeff, Eric, uh, the whole team, Opal, Opal you know, just yep. incredible people um, helping. You know, it's they're not there for anything other than to serve the needs of that community. And that's a unique perspective. So, you know, rarely do I put a plug in for a company, but certainly uh, Stroudwater Associates, I'd encourage our listeners uh, today, uh, if you're considering, you know, understanding your value, or maybe you just need help getting your practices back in order. It doesn't, you know, they're they're not all about M&As. You know, they have a whole nother segment uh, of their organization that focuses on, you know, how to improve your bottom line, you know, how to have efficiencies. Um, and that's and th- that's why we brought them here. And they were phenomenal in that. And we've talked to, to Eric and to Opal about that as well. But, Jeff, again, we could talk for hours. Uh, you are insightful uh, and you are uh, thought-provoking. And I want to thank you for your time today and for joining us here on Rural Health Rising. JJ and Rachel, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed it. Now, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories unique to rural life? So I'm a, I'm a Maine native, um, and Maine is a predominantly rural state. Um, I, have, I have very fond memories uh, uh, in my teenage years. Um, I befriended a, uh, a local family that, that operated a small farm, and they kind of had me. My summer job was to kind of be there. I wouldn't say farmhand. That's probably overstating it. They had cows and pigs and chickens and and grew up a, a, a lot of corn. But I was kind of their jack of all trades. It was kind of my after school job. And uh, the world's the world's nicest people. Um, and to this day, uh, really really have enjoyed my friendship with them. Um, um, but. One of the things I still love about, and I, I live probably three miles from where I grew up, oh, so wow. I haven't traveled very far. That's great. I bumped around a little bit, but ultimately came back to where I started. And um, what I love is um, whether it's going down to the, the nearest farm that has a farm stand and picking up eggs or uh, a cut of beef or you know fresh vegetables, or um, because we're in Maine and, and um, we live near the ocean, mm. um, there's a lot of aquaculture now. So essentially um, kind of the farming of the sea. So we've got friends that raise um, oysters and mussels. Mm. And so, you know, you can stop by the 
the house and, and pick up um, uh, a dozen oysters mm. for, you know, 15 bucks oh and come home and shock them and eat them. So That's unfair. that proximity yeah. to the to the um, folks that are growing your food. I, I will share with you just one one thing about um, Maine that may be of interest to your listeners. There's an island off the shore of Maine called Monhegan Island. And uh, Monhegan is famous as an artist colony, but it also has a year-round fishing community. Um, and um, they have a unique uh, lobster season, and um, it it's, runs a little different from the rest of the state. Um, but they have a tradition on Monhegan Island where at the, the first day of the season, everybody, I don't know if folks are familiar with lobstering, but it involves putting setting traps mm-hmm. and, and that sit on the bottom of the seafloor and you have buoys that float on top. And then the, the boats will go out and haul the traps a couple times a week um, and check for lobsters. Um, but they have a tradition that everyone goes or no one goes. And what that means is on the opening day of the season, if somebody is ill or they have had some sort of family crisis, maybe it's a birth in the family or a death in the family or what have you, that they will actually, nobody will set their traps until all the lobstermen are available to do it. And to me, um, that's like the purest expression of community and looking out to your your community members and taking care of them um, that I can think of. And and as I think about rural and, and rural healthcare, you know, it's it's really about, you know, friends and neighbors taking care of folks. And you think about the nurses and the staff um, that are there and are making that commitment and how they love the work they do. Um, that really is that um, purest essence of looking out and helping your your neighbor and your fellow um, man and woman. Um, and I, I've always loved that story about Monhegan Island. And, um, you know, I wish there were more of it in the world, uh, frankly. No, no, no joke. Well, what a remarkable story uh, and what a remarkable journey for you. Thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, Rachel. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Jeff Summer, Managing Director at Stroudwater Associates. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.